You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Today, we're excited. We're starting a new set of sermons called Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. And anytime we start a new set of sermons, I always feel inclined to just start with, the, with trying to answer the question, why are we doing this set of sermons? Uh, why this particular issue or topic? Or uh, why, are we doing, why are we doing this, what, what we're doing? And that, that, that answer actually starts in, in my early days of following Jesus. Um, I met Jesus in junior high, and uh, it was soon there, uh, thereafter that, that I remember a person coming up to me and giving me a pocket Bible. You know what I'm talking about? It's one of those really small Bibles, and it's got the New Testament in it, and it's got uh, Psalms and the Proverbs in it. So, so he came up and gave me a, a pocket Bible. And, uh, you know, looking back, I still appreciate that moment. Uh, but at the same time, I, I, looking back now, I can see that in some ways that, that's indicative of a larger problem within kind of Christendom. And the larger problem is we don't just have pocket Bibles. We have way too many pocket Christians. Christians that when they think about their Bible, they just think New Testament, maybe Psalms, and maybe Proverbs. We have way too many pocket Christians. Uh, recently, I listened to a, an older saint talk about his experience early on in his walk with Jesus. And this is what he said about it. <clears throat> he said, my fundamental impression was that the Old Testament was a bit of an embarrassment to everyone. And that usually we referred to it only to apologize for it or to contrast it with the New Testament. Now, <clears throat> uh, let me translate that. What he's saying there is, my impression early on was like the, the, the Old Testament was like that crazy uncle who shows up at your family reunion. That, that's what the Old Testament is. And, you know, when you think about that crazy uncle, it, you're, you're okay, sort of, that he's there, but you really don't know what to do with him. And, and honestly, if he didn't show up, you'd probably stay a little bit longer. That, that's, how, that's how many of us think about the Old Testament. We just don't know what to do with the first two-thirds. Two-thirds, that's the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of the Bible. Uh, so, so, so we carry a whole pocket Bible. I mean, it's the whole Bible. It, it's all there. Uh, but at the same time, we, we, it might as well just have the New Testament, maybe the Psalms and the Proverbs in it. Too many of us carry a whole pocket Bible. And to, to take this a step further, one of the most popular and well-known pastors in America today, uh, about a year ago, encouraged his people, actually encouraged his people to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. To, to unhitch themselves from it. He went on later to explain his thoughts by saying this, I'm convinced that we make a better case for Jesus if we leave the Old Testament out of the argument. So, so I think we make a better case for Jesus than the case that Jesus actually made for himself in the Old Testament. I, I, he said, I'm convinced that we make a better case for Jesus if we leave the Old Testament out of the argument. He goes on to say, I'm convinced for the sake of this generation and the next generation, we have to rethink our apologetic as Christians. And the less we depend on the Old Testament to prop up our New Testament faith, the better. That, that's... That's a church that wants to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. Just explicitly, let's do that. Let's kind of sever the cord between us and the Old Testament. But even churches who, who would, you know, confessionally, or, you know, profess being hitched to the Old Testament, practically were unhitched from it. 
some surveys uh, put the ratio of Old Testament to New Testament sermons as a 1 to 10 ratio. The first two-thirds of our Bible gets one. The, the, the last one-third gets nine. And, and I agree with one author as he's commenting on that when he says, might this imbalance in the spiritual diet of most Christians explain many of the spiritual problems in the modern church and in modern Christians? How can Christian pastors hope to feed their flock on a well-balanced spiritual diet if they completely neglect the 39 books of the Holy Scripture on which Jesus and all the New Testament authors receive their own spiritual nourishment? I agree with that. I think he is spot on. Pocket Christians are malnourished Christians. New Testament, Proverbs, some Christians who just see their spiritual life and are being nourished by just that section of the scriptures are malnourished Christians. So if you want to think about one way to articulate the goal of this set of sermons, this set of sermons is out to help us Learn how to enjoy Jesus on every page of the scriptures, not just in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. I mean, think about the Bible for a moment. The Bible is a precious gift from God, and it was written by people who were sovereignly moved along and protected from error by God's Spirit as they wrote. Now, th this, is why, th this is why Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all scripture is breathed out by God, breathed out by God. He, 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 it, it's God's word. It's a divine book. It's breathed out by God. So, so each human author was carried along by God's spirit in such a way that the Bible contains the precise words that God wanted to use to reveal himself. It, it is God-breathed. And, and it says all scripture is God-breathed. Now, that all scripture is not just the New Testament. As a matter of fact, when Paul says all scripture in this passage, all scripture is primarily talking about the Old Testament. Now, now listen to what he says about this all scripture that is breathed out by God. He goes on to say, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That's the Old Testament. It's profitable for all of those things. And then he goes on in verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Here's what Paul is saying. We need the whole Bible to make whole Christians. We need the whole thing. Not just the New Testament, as beautiful as the New Testament is. We need the whole Bible to make whole Christians. And if we're going to understand the whole Bible, all the scriptures that are God-breathed and useful, not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well, then we need to walk this seven-mile road in Luke 24. This seven-mile road leading out of Jerusalem to this town, little village called Emmaus. Because it's on this road that we learn that the Old Testament is not the New Testament's crazy uncle, but it's the New Testament's beautiful spouse. That, that's what we learn here. So, so let's take this passage in a, in a couple of different parts, three parts. And by the way, when you're thinking Luke 24, let me just set up the context for you. Think about the Gospel of Luke. Luke is showing us the life of Jesus, that, that Jesus lived perfectly for us. He, he fulfilled every last command. Everything that God said do, Jesus perfectly did. But Luke also shows us the death of Jesus, his final days. When he was betrayed by his friends, arrested, mocked, spit upon, and eventually nailed to a tree and murdered for our sin. Pierced for our transgressions. 
And, and three days later, Luke shows us a risen Jesus who walks out of the grave. It's an amazing, it's an amazing book. But in Luke chapter 24, we are now in that 40-day period between the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus. And this is where we find our passage. And in this passage in Luke 24 this morning, the resurrected Jesus catches up with two of his disciples on this road out of Jerusalem to Emmaus. And I'm going to take it in three parts. We've got the problem, the solution, and the blessing. We'll start with the problem. The problem. Let's start in verse 17. And Jesus said to them, verse 17 of Luke 24, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. They were, they, were, they were sad. They were despondent about what had just happened in Jerusalem. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, Well, what things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now think with me. Uh, like many of us, these two disciples are bouncing between great faith in Jesus and great fear. Now, now that's a lot like us, isn't it? In our, in our life with Jesus, we find ourselves ping-balling back between the, these two extremes. Great faith in Jesus and, and great fear. And right now in their life, these two disciples, fear literally has them by the throat. It's probably the reason they are leaving Jerusalem. They are scared, they're, they're depressed, this text says that they're sad. Now, now, why are they fearful? What is the reason for their fearfulness? Now, there's a lot of things we could probably say about that, but one of the things that this text is showing us is part of the reason they are fearful is, is because they had an incomplete or faulty view of Jesus. They had, a, they had a view of Jesus, but it was a self-made or self-fashioned view of Jesus. They had created a view of Jesus to, to kind of fit what they wanted Jesus to be, what, what they thought Jesus should be. Uh, so when they thought of Jesus, they thought of a Messiah, uh, this one they were waiting for. They, they, they wanted a Jesus who would come in power as a conqueror, the subduer of Rome, who would, re, in a lot of ways, just restore the Jewish people to a place of prominence. That, that was their view of Jesus. So when they, when they are talking about Jesus like they do in verse 19, this is it. This is their Jesus. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the man who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. That's what they thought of Jesus as. That. But, but that was it. He was just that prominent conqueror, ruler, Jesus. And the problem was their created Jesus kept them from seeing the actual Jesus. Isn't that ironic? They had fashioned a Jesus into their own sort of liking, 
And, and when the actual Jesus showed up, they couldn't see the actual Jesus because of their self-made and self-fashioned Jesus. They couldn't fathom the Jesus described in verses 20 and 21. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death. They didn't like that Jesus. The Jesus who dies. And crucified him. Verse 21. But we had hoped that this was the Jesus that we were hoping for. He was the one to redeem Israel. To to restore them to a place of prominence. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Do you see what's happening? They had this incomplete view of Jesus, and that incomplete view of Jesus is robbing them of faith in the actual Jesus. That that incomplete wrong view of Jesus is stripping their faith from the actual Jesus. So, So now fear is filling their heart. Hope has been snatched from them. And this is what a wrong view of Jesus produces. Fear, hopelessness, despondency. Now, think about this in our own lives. We today are still equally prone to making Jesus into our own image. They're not more prone than we are. We're equally prone to trying to fashion a God of our liking. So so ask yourself the question for a moment. Who is Jesus? How would you answer that question? Who is Jesus? What you think first, how you answer that question It is one of the most important thoughts you will ever think in your life. If we're wrong in our conception of Jesus, then just like these disciples, when hardship hits, when life in a fallen world shows up at your door, fear, not faith, will fill our hearts. That the flame of hope inside of us will flicker and fade and and maybe even die if we have a wrong view of Jesus. So that leads to the question, how in the world do we make sure we have a right view of Jesus? If having a wrong uh, sort of view of Jesus is that important, how do we make sure then that our, that our view of Jesus is not incomplete? That Rather than that, that it's rich and, and full and robust. Well, here's Jesus' solution in this text, the solution. Look at verse 25. And Jesus said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That's the problem. An incomplete view of Jesus. Verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's shorthand for the whole Old Testament, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures, that's shorthand again for all the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then you get down to verse 44. Then Jesus said to them, he's now talking to the rest of his disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, again, shorthand for the entirety of the Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now that's amazing, isn't it? Jesus actually hitches himself directly to the Old Testament. He's saying, if you want to know me and understand me, read the Old Testament. Yes, read the New Testament. Start there, yes. 
But, but if you want to understand me, read the Old Testament. If you want to maybe get a condensed sort of uh, the, the point that Jesus is making here, you, you could say it this way. Jesus is reminding us here that the Bible tells one grand story about one great person. This is what he's trying to, to show us here. That the Bible, that the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, that the entire Bible is about telling one grand story about one great person. That's the Bible. That's what the Bible is doing. It's telling the, the story of one grand story about one great person. Now think about, think about this, this text again. Jesus here seems to think that a plain reading of the Old Testament, not some sort of magical reading, like you have to be able to do calculus to read it this way, but like a plain reading of the Old Testament will convince you that Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. A plain reading of the Old Testament will convince us that he is the suffering servant who came to live for us, to die for us, and on the third day defang death. A plain reading of the Old Testament says that about Jesus. That, that he is the one. Jesus is saying here that when, when you think about the Old Testament, you, you should see the entire Old Testament as one big billboard pointing to me. That, that's how Jesus says to, to look at the Old Testament, to read the Old Testament. And, and he does this throughout the, the New Testament. If you uh, go to John chapter 5, you don't have to go there. It'll be on the screen for you. But John chapter 5, there's this one helpful little passage in it where Jesus helps us as he rebukes the religious leaders. And this is what he says in John 5, 39. He's talking to the religious leaders, and he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And then listen to what he says about the scriptures. And it is they, the scriptures, again, shorthand for the entirety of the Old Testament. And it is they that bear witness about me. The Bible is telling one grand story about one great person. See, when we think about the Bible, we oftentimes, and, and all the, the sort of stories that make up the Bible, but we oftentimes think of all of those stories like a mall. Now think about the last time you went to the mall. Uh, when you walk through the mall, there are literally hundreds of different stores, and each of those stores are flashing, I mean, just thousands of messages at you, right? When you walk through the mall, Hundreds of stores, thousands of messages or stories are, are being um, sold to you and flashed before you. But, but here's the thing about walking through the mall. All of those distinct stories of all those different stores, there is no connectivity between them. They're, they're all distinct stories, unrelated stories. And this is how we oftentimes see the Bible. There's this story in the Bible, there's that story in the Bible, and like them all, they're all saying different things to different people, Right? But that's not the best way to, to think about the Bible. The Bible isn't like a mall. The Bible is like a great movie. So think about a movie. In a movie, you know that every detail written into the beginning of the story is shaping our understanding for, for later on when that climatic moment happens. Right? So, so you know every detail in there is important. It's shaping. It's, it's helping give a context and a way of seeing and thinking about the huge moments in, in the movie. Now, that's the Bible. God, the director, has inserted hundreds of stories into the Bible. But, but all of those stories, through all of the 66 books that make up the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, they're all telling one grand story about one great person. 
It's telling the story of God sending his beloved son Jesus to rescue a rebellious people. And God taking those rebels and making them his sons and daughters. It's about God saving them and setting them free to shine as lights in this dark world so people would see their good deeds and be drawn to their good father. It's that story. that The scarlet thread of redemption holds the Bible together. It's the unifying thread that, that runs throughout the scriptures. It's all about Jesus. The Bible is telling one grand story about one great person. I love Sally Lloyd-Jones and her uh, Jesus Storybook Bible. By the way, if you have young kids in the room, you should go out to the bookstore if you don't have this book, and you should go buy it today, the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's right over there in the Resource Center. You should get that today if you don't have it. And even if you don't have kids, you should set it on your nightstand and make that like a little nightly devotional. It will do as good a job as any book out there of just showing you Jesus throughout the Bible. The Jesus Storybook Bible, listen to what Sally Lloyd-Jones says in the Jesus Storybook Bible. She says, there are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. And every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. The Bible tells one grand story about one great person. When you read the Old Testament, it's like pulling back the curtains over the windows And when you pull back the curtains over the window, this vibrant light sweeps into the room, illuminating the person and work of Jesus. That's what reading the Old Testament is supposed to do. When you read the Old Testament, it takes the beautiful New Testament portrait of Jesus. And it's a beautiful New Testament portrait of Jesus that we get to see there in front of us. But the Old Testament has this way of then brushing on a context behind Jesus. The sort of setting that we can see Jesus within. And then the Old Testament adds these beautiful, deep, and rich hues to the face of Jesus. That's what reading the Old Testament is meant to do. It was funny, here recently uh, I was uh, talking to Caleb, my my son. He's our middle kid. And I I said, Caleb, let me ask you the question. If I were to tell you to to take your Bible and to find Jesus in the Bible for me, where where would you go? Where, Where would you take me? And he said, well, I, gosh, I don't know. I guess I'd go to Luke. I'm like, that's a great place to see Jesus. I mean, he is there in the gospel of Luke. It's hard to miss Jesus there. And then I said, well, well where else would you take me? And, and he said, well, I, I, I don't know. I guess, I guess I could go anywhere in the Bible to find Jesus. And I'm like, yes, that's the point. You can go anywhere in the Bible and find Jesus. You can see Jesus in the events, the people, the places of the Old Testament. You can see Jesus in the big themes of the Old Testament. Forgiveness, joy, rescue, marriage, the desire for a real home, a promised land. Behind all of those things in the Old Testament is the face of Jesus. This is why Jesus says in verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures, all the Old Testament, the things concerning himself. 
Now, I, I had a friend that just paused over that and said, I mean, wouldn't that be like the best Bible study ever, by the way? Jesus just says, let me show you me in all the Old Testament. And I had a friend that just said, let, let me pause over that. And let's just imagine for a moment what Jesus might have said, what his sermon might have sounded like, where Jesus might have gone. And here's what he said. He said, Jesus may have started with Genesis by showing himself as the second Adam who resisted temptation and obeyed God, God's commands, or as the promised seed of, of woman who crushed the snake's head, or as the greater ark in whom we hide by faith to escape the waters of God's judgment. He could have shown how Jesus is the greater Joseph, beloved of his father, betrayed by his brothers, exalted among the Gentiles, and the one who gives bread to a famished world. Or he might have gone to Exodus where he could have shown that he is the greater Moses who leads his people to escape judgment by hiding under the blood of the Passover lamb on their way to the promised land. Or how he is the true manna from heaven and the water from the rock that will never leave them thirsty again. Then he might have turned to Leviticus to show that he is the fulfillment of the entire sacrificial system. The greater scapegoat on whom the sins of the nation were laid. Or to Numbers where he could have shown that he was like the bronze snake Moses lifted up in the wilderness. Or who would bring healing from the serpent's fatal bite if looked to in faith. Then he could have gone to Deuteronomy to show how he is the prophet like Moses, to whom the father says, this is my beloved son, so listen to him. Or he could have shown that he is the greater Joshua, who came to lead God's people to their long-promised rest. Or he could have gone to Judges, where we see glimmers of Jesus as the one whom God raised up to deliver Israel from the oppression of their enemies and to rule over them in righteousness. Or he could have gone to First and Second Samuel where we find that Jesus is the greater David who was after the Father's heart and who courageously slew the greater Goliath of Satan to deliver God's people from the shame and slavery of their sin. Uh, then he could have shown, uh, shown them uh, how he was the greater Job who suffered not because of his sin but because of his righteousness. And though he was misunderstood, God raised him off the ash heap of shame to intercede for those who had formerly opposed him. Or he may have given them a tour through the Psalms, reminding them how his resurrection was foreshadowed in Psalm 16. How Psalm 22 provides this prophetic picture of the innocent one whose hands and feet were pierced by evildoers. Or how Psalm 18 describes him as the stone the builders rejected and the cornerstone on whom God would build his church. Or he could have taken them to Proverbs and shown himself to be the wisdom of God. Or to Ecclesiastes as the one who gives us abundant life instead of vanity. Or to the Song of Solomon as the greater bridegroom who showers his bride with steadfast love. Then he could have turned to the prophets and shown in Isaiah that he is the one born of a virgin, the anointed root of Jesse, the prince of peace, the suffering servant who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Or Hosea, where he is the faithful husband who was betrayed by an adulterous bride yet still loved and pursued her to have her as his own. 
Or he could have gone to Jonah where we see Jesus as the faithful prophet who, unlike Jonah, won't run from unworthy sinners but instead was swallowed by the well of God's wrath until he came forth alive three days later to call people to repentance. And rather than pouting like Jonah outside the city in rebellion, Jesus, he he poured out his blood outside the city to redeem them. Or in Nahum, as the one who took on himself the just judgment of God's enemies, God's enemies deserved in order to make them his friends. And then he might have concluded in Malachi, showing that he is the faithful priest who stood up in the Lord's temple and rebuked the people for their lame and empty offerings, and then offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. Jesus didn't have to be picky. He could go any place in the Old Testament because the entire Old Testament is a witness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The Bible tells one grand story about one great person, and Jesus is the hero of that story. So so our job now as New Testament Christians, right, as Christians on this side of the cross, our job now is to look on every page of the Bible, and to begin to learn how to see the face of Jesus on every single page, in every Old Testament story, to begin asking that question, where's Jesus? How does this story reveal Jesus? How does this person, this place, this event, this theme show us Jesus? Because it's all about Jesus. That was, was Jesus' solution to their problem of dismay and despondency and hopelessness and their lack of faith, to look in the scriptures and find Jesus everywhere. That's the solution. And then comes the blessing, and we'll finish here. The blessing. Luke chapter 24, verse 32. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures. Now, what I would love to allow verse 32 to do for us this morning is let's allow it to answer the question, why should we read the Bible? Why why should we read the scriptures? Both the Old and the New Testament. Why, Why should we do that? Why do we open up the scriptures, including the Old Testament, and and day by day steep ourselves in the scriptures? marinate ourselves in the scriptures. Why do we do that? It's because when we open up the scriptures, the Spirit of God opens up our eyes and our hearts to see Jesus, the very one the Bible is about. That's why we read the Bible, to, to see Jesus. The Spirit opens our eyes to let us see Jesus. And when we, when we see and experience Jesus, our hearts begin to burn inside of us, just like they did for these disciples. Our hearts begin to, to burn inside of us with delight and enjoyment in Jesus, with passion and love for Jesus. That little flickering fa- flame of, of faith in our hearts begin to, begins to burn bright and big as we open up the scriptures and our eyes begin to see Jesus. Listen, we don't read the Bible because we have to read the Bible. We read the Bible, both the Old and New Testament, because it's there that we can see Jesus. That's why we read the Bible. It's there that we encounter Jesus' dying love for us. 
That, that dying love that brings life to our dead hearts. That, that dying love that thaws the frozen tundra of our heart. It's there that we encounter that dying love. It's there as we open up the scriptures, both the Old and the New Testament, that we see the resurrected and reigning Jesus. And the resurrected and reigning Jesus imparts fresh faith to our fearful hearts. I, I need that today. Who in here doesn't need that today? The fresh impartation of faith into our hearts. As we see this risen Jesus who will one day split the sky and come back for his bride to snatch her up and to fix this broken world. We, we read the scriptures to see that Jesus. Songate, this, this is the reason we read the Bible. It's because when we read the Bible, we receive that blessing, that, that burning blessing of seeing Jesus. Amen? So, so will you pray with me? I want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you today what would be most helpful. I just want to pray for you right now that the Spirit of God would wipe away everything that would not be helpful this morning to you and the things that would be helpful that the Spirit of God would just imprint them upon your heart today. And I'd love to talk to just a, a few different maybe categories of people in the room this morning. In that passage in John chapter 5, where Jesus is helping us by rebuking the, re, uh, rebuking the, the religious leaders, Jesus looks at them and he, he tells them, you have searched the scriptures because you, you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is the scriptures that bear witness about me. And then in verse 40, he says, Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And so I, I would love to talk for just a second to those who you're in the room this morning, but you're still refusing to come to Jesus so that you may have life that you may have life. You're still trying to find life in your own good works, in your own way of doing things, but you just, you haven't come to Jesus so that you could have life. And here's what coming to Jesus for life looks like. It looks like us turning from our sin all the sin that we know disqualifies us before the Lord that would keep us, would keep us away from the Lord. It looks like us turning from all of, of that sin. And it, it looks like us turning from all the good things that we think somehow make us right and presentable before God. So it looks like us turning from all of the bad things that we know disqualify us and all the good things that somehow we think qualify us before the Lord. And it looks like us throwing our life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what the Bible calls faith or coming to him or believing in Jesus. 
It looks like us giving up on ourselves, finally getting to the end of ourself, and then finally coming to Jesus so that we could have life. And there are some of us that you have been, maybe you've even been around these things, just like the religious leaders, all of your life. But you still have never come to Jesus for your life. And this is the moment for you. This is the moment where God has you right here in this room hearing this particular sermon. And the Lord is at work in you. He's helping you see Jesus in a new and fresh way as the one who actually imparts life to dead hearts today. The, the one who rescues and redeems rebellious people. Th this is your moment. And so if that's you today, just where you are, I just want to give you a moment to communicate that to God. Uh, Father, I am turning from everything all my sin, all my good works, I'm turning from it all and I'm throwing my life upon the good news of Jesus. And if that's you this morning, why don't you just raise your hand there where you are where I can see that. If that's you this morning, yep, I see you there. Anybody else? Yep, I see you there. Anyone else? If you raise your hand, just take a minute to, to make eye contact with me. Anyone else in the room? Who this morning, this is your morning to step across that decisive line of faith. Anyone else this morning? Okay, if you raised your hand this morning, the most important thing you can do when we finish this service is make sure you meet some of our elders, pastors, prayer team, after the service, we would love to pray with you and to take that first sort of step with you this morning. So make sure you meet us down here after the service. Now for the rest of us, are we searching the scriptures, steeping ourselves in the scriptures to see and experience more of Jesus? If not, this would be such a wonderful morning to make that sort of fresh commitment. Man, I want to start reading the Bible and I want to start reading it, not because I have to, but because I get to see Jesus in it, everywhere in it, on every page of the Bible. And I'm so glad this morning that we get to finish by taking communion. And let me just remind you who communion is for. It is for those who are in relationship with Jesus. So this morning, if you haven't taken Jesus, make sure you take, make sure you take Christ before you take communion this morning. But it's also for those who are in right relationship with Jesus. So, so anytime we take communion, it's a, it's a moment for you to still your heart before the Lord and to ask the Lord, is there anything I need to repent of this morning? Is there anything I need to turn from? Is there any unconfessed sin in me that I haven't confessed to you and a, and a friend? And if there is, it's a moment for you to do that this morning. And then it's also a, a morning where we get to rejoice that we have a Savior who lived perfectly. Everywhere we have failed, He perfectly succeeded. We have a Savior who lived for us and died for us. When we dip the bread, that, that bread is the broken body of Jesus, crushed for our sin. When we dip it in the juice, that juice is the spilled blood of Jesus that covers our sin cancels the debt of our sin. 
So when we dip the bread in the juice and then we eat the bread, we are being reminded today that we have a God who sent his beloved son for rebels just like us. To make us rebels, his sons and daughters. So we have four stations up front kind of spread across here. We have a couple of stations in the back, one by each exit, and then we have one station that's gluten-free right there by the sound booth. So I'm going to pray for you, and then as you're ready this morning, you can come up and take communion with us. Father, we love you, and we are thankful for the Word. We're thankful for the Bible, the whole Bible, that tells us the one grand story about the one great person of Jesus. And may we be a church that just steeps ourselves in the scriptures that is learning how to see Jesus on every single page and it's in your good name that we ask it amen thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church a podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible so we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family we meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together